Makako. How are you on this breezy autumn day in Hawaii? I'm Noe Tanigawa. Thank you so much for swinging by the Aloha Friday conversation. I just love this music. Pandanus by the iconic Peter Moon Band. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Let's roll here. Now, did you get your $500 Hawaii restaurant debit card? More than 90% of those cards sent to Hawaii's unemployed have been activated. And more than half the $58 million originally loaded onto those cards has already been spent. Now, Hawaii Restaurant Association Executive Director Cheryl Matsuoka is saying the action on those cards just may incentivize more restaurants to chance them. Seeing they spent $26 million, we're hoping that restaurants now start opening up their doors again. I know for a fact, because I've spoken to many of the Hawaii restaurant card holders, many of those people were waiting, are waiting to spend it for Thanksgiving. Many of them say, you know, Cheryl, I'm unemployed. I'm going to save my card so that I can, you know, those turkey boxes to go. So they're going to be purchasing those with their restaurant card. I feel for the restaurant. It's a couple of weeks, I think, to really get yourself rolling. And then, you know, the restaurant card kind of ends December 15th and it's, you're looking at a cliff. Right, exactly. We got shuttered down twice, right? And we had no notice. Literally, it was maybe two days notice. So what do you do with all the food in the fridge and your staff? So yes, if they have to get shuttered down a third time, a lot of the restaurants saying, if we have to do this a third time, we don't think we're going to be able to survive this. Many restaurants targeted November 15th to open up before Thanksgiving. So you'll see more restaurants opening up. We're hoping and praying that our numbers stay low. Oh my God, girl, if our numbers go up and we go back to tier one on Oahu. We got a test ahead here, man. Our restaurateurs are very creative, like you said. So even Thanksgiving, they already started designing Thanksgiving, right? What container will the cranberry be in? What container is the gravy in? What container is the mashed potato? They've ordered all their little tiny containers for their food and how it's going to look. Because like anything else, it's got to travel well. It's got to look good. So when people open it up, it's like a dining experience. You know, our best experiences are when we go out and we dine together and we're laughing. Well, when you open up that box and your family is there and you open everything up and you're heating it all up and you smell all the herbs and all the spices, you know, that's the experience, right? Oh, yeah. Cheryl Matsuoka is executive director of the Hawaii Restaurant Association. Yesterday, Governor Ike added a way to purchase restaurant debit cards as gifts. Again, they do expire December 15th. restaurants actually opened during the pandemic, right? Istanbul and Kaka'ako, Sarithra South Indian on Kapiolani, Nudes and Brickfire Tavern opened in Kaimuki, along with the new Miro Kaimuki, opened by celebrated chef Chris Kajioka. Opened, then closed, then opened. I mean, I stopped by the former St. Louis Clubhouse on Eisenberg the other day to talk with Chef Chris about his new project, Papa Kurt's. Kurt being Kajioka's legendary mentor, Kurt Hirabara of Hirabara Farms. 
sitting there in the familiar clubhouse. I just asked Chris how he sees himself these days. I don't know. Not, not just a chef anymore, I don't think. Yeah, more of a, hopefully a leader <laughs> of my group, yeah. Well, here we are. Um, yeah, Papa <laughs> Kurtz. Um, it was just, you know, honestly, I was having lunch with a friend, and uh, he kind of said, I, I really feel like you need to sign in with a cheeseburger. And he said, you should open something. And I was like, yeah, I should. You know, just like, <laughs> you know, this space came up, and... You know, I love this location. So, so you're thinking Simon's stand right across Stadium Park, yeah. just down from everybody knows a bowling alley could be different. Yeah, this is probably going to be the most simplest menu I'll ever do. Just cheeseburgers, Simon, and, and teriyaki sticks. That's it. You know, we're still taking good care. We're using local purveyors, local meats, cooked how we know how to cook. It's not going to be expensive. It just should be delicious. During this year, that's obviously what I think people need. People don't need fine dining right now, you know. Nor do I want to cook it fine fine dining right now. It doesn't feel right, you know. Before, you know, you think about how fancy or how beautiful you can make the food. Now we're thinking we want more people to be able to eat it, you know, reach more people, and we want it to just be super delicious, you know, as well as more community focused. That's definitely been something that I've been thinking a lot about this year. You know, How do you mean that? You know, giving away food is one thing, but... Giving away food, I think I'm very lucky. Uh, you know, I have great people around me. I feel like I'm given a lot of great opportunities, restaurant opportunities that I don't know if I deserve them all, but this year has not been bad, you know? It's been obviously terrible for the world, but we're not in a bad position here, which which we're very fortunate, you know, and- Your uh, investors, I mean, what are they thinking? They're investing in a restaurant now. Yeah, I have my core people who've been with me, you know, literally since Vintage Cave. Friends, they've come along for the whole ride, you know, and at this point, they trust that I'm gonna make the best decision for them, you know, and I am. That's why I hardly sleep at night, is that I'm in charge of a lot of people, and I'm in charge of someone's money. That means a lot to me that so far, I've been able to pay everyone back. So so what is the status of your businesses now? Miro is open. Open for? Dinner. D really? Yeah, dinner, and then we have brunch on Sundays. And takeout or not? Uh, no takeout right okay. now, yeah. So we're gonna ship the takeout to here. We used to do bentos there every weekend. It right, was... that first bento yeah. you did. Oh, that was we, a killer. We did a, we did a thousand bentos for like three, four weeks, and then it was just like too much, you know? But the response to it, made me really realize that that's what really people want. They want food that hits their soul, you know? The response we got from that has probably been bigger than any other restaurant or dish or anything that I've ever put out, you know? And that, that really spoke to me. Hmm. And it, we touched people that probably would never come to Miro. You want to stay in touch with them, apparently. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that, there's that. And then I've always done a lot of charity dinners, which I think is important, but you know, this year I, I spoke to a few people who, you know, raised the money for charities and the in-person events, their fundraising, is canceled this year. So they're, they're even more struggling, right? So, you know, that got me thinking that if I'm okay financially with my restaurants, then I should pay that forward a little bit, you know? So I was working with the Hawaii Community Foundation and I picked three local nonprofits that need that funding really bad. Um, Hawaii Children's Cancer. My wife's sister had leukemia and passed at a very young age. So we've always donated to that. 
Lanakila Meals on Wheels, obviously for the elderly, and then Huala Nopua to combat human trafficking, which is awful. Basically, I pledge now till I'm done cooking that 10% of what, everything I earn from every project is gonna go to them. Mm, yeah, I mean, to me, like, I'm not by all means rich, but there's a lot of people who can give. Maybe they see that and they should give because there's a lot of people who are not in a good position. And I'll tell you, the Honolulu now, it looks a lot different from when I grew up. Right here, I mean, there's like four tents set up. My son asks me all the time, how come there's so many homeless people? I don't know what to tell him. I know. Yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of lot of stuff going on there. And I just wanna be able to contribute if I can, you know? It's also a motivation for me. If I make money, then I get to donate, you know? So that motivates me to make sure that things are good. <laughs> yeah, so there's Barmaze kind of on hold. Yeah. There's uh, Senya closed for the moment. Yeah. There's Miro dining indoors. Yeah. And there's the new place. Papa Kurtz, yeah. And we recently are going to take over Hall Trees and I, come on a beach hotel, which is, you know. One of my favorite places. It's iconic. To me, the best spot in all of Waikiki, you know? That's yeah. a lovely little hotel. Such a great hotel. And she hired Alan Takasaki of the Bistro. <gasps> He's going to run the restaurant. A huge fan of him. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. I mean, selfishly, to be honest with you, like, I missed his restaurant so much that <laughs> I want to eat his food again, you know? Also here, Alejandro Briseño was a huge part here. Have you ever had the pizzas at V-Lounge back in the day? The egg on top. Yeah, so that's, it. that's him. He's amazing. He moved back from LA. He was the corporate chef for Nobu restaurants. Mark Noguchi is a partner here. You know, his food is delicious. It just hits that mom spot, you know? So I thought it was crucial for him to be part of it. Fun, so fun to hear. I'm supposed yeah. to be contacting this guy. Jason. Jason, yeah. Peel. He's my corporate chef now. Oh. He's my right hand, my left hand. I'm growing really fast, but I'm doing that because these guys need opportunities and they need a spot too, right? They're amazing. When you work with people who you really admire, it's easy, it's fun, you know? I like coming to work. Chef, active citizen, Chris Kadioka. The doors at Papa Kurtz could swing open later this month. Yet another Kako thing. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the Ukiyo-e print series Hokusai's Mount Fuji, featuring Great Wave off Kanagawa, on view now through the 29th, honolulumuseum.org.
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Hirsch Wilson, author of Firefighter Zen. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about a firefighter's thoughts on thriving in tough times. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and The Hub Coworking Hawaii. Eric Liu is co-founder and CEO of Citizen University based in Seattle. He directs a citizenship program at the Aspen Institute, and his TED Talk on why ordinary people need to understand power charts over two million views. I got a chance to talk with Mr. Liu after last week's election. I think the most important thing to recognize about democracy is that it is not a one and done, I voted on election day endeavor. Uh, it is a practice. Uh, it requires daily, repeated rehearsal. It requires mindfulness because democracy is about creating a culture in which we are working all the time to sustain a sense of equal dignity and equal voice to people. And I don't mean to be Pollyanna. This is a painful, sad, catastrophic time. And it's a time where people are finding their capacity to create new power out of thin air by organizing. My greatest message to anybody listening of like, what do I do? How can I become useful right now? Join a club on anything. It can be on gardening. It can be on baseball. It can be on addressing homelessness because it is the habit of joining into a common endeavor and the negotiation, the compromise and the navigation to get there. That set of muscles has atrophied in American life. Especially in this moment after the recent election, I appreciated your simplification of the task before us. We can phrase in a lot of ways, unify the country, but you simplified it to ways people can learn about each other. Look, I what think are there, there are different approaches to unity and unification. Now, I am not for a unity or unification that tries to paper over legitimate divides in worldview and experience, and particularly silences voices that have been more on the margins. But there is a kind of approach to unity and unification that is more about integrity, integrity of the whole. And that means recognizing that the whole, whether you're talking about the whole of the United States, the whole of Hawaii, that the whole contains multitudes, as Whitman put it. The whole contains complexity. And you cannot reduce that complexity down to a pure monolithic string. And so to really see each other as humans, as Americans, is to see in each other the possibility of complexity and contradiction <laughs> and not to pound each other over that, but to try to understand each other. And this idea that you can only be on one side or the other is wrong, that we are meant to be arguing. And the point is what we need in American civic life is not fewer arguments. We just need less stupid arguments. And less stupid arguments means arguments that are more historically literate, more emotionally intelligent, and more honest about power. And the fact that we come into every civic and public argument with differing positions of power. I think we've got to cut through a bunch of cliches that have arisen in the time of COVID. One of those cliches is we're all in this together. You heard that a lot. Oh, well, uh, are you going to tear that down? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm all for the principle that we're all in it together. What I want to tear down 
is the hypocrisy of many of those who say it. And I, and I think the thing that we've got to put to the test is, are we? If we're all in it together, we've got to recognize that we're not able to sever our fates from one another in a pandemic. Actually, taking care of the people who are most vulnerable to COVID right now is a way to take care of all of us. And so I'm talking about the thing that precedes forms of structural engagement in politics. Culture precedes structure. The norms, the values, the habits that we engage in add up to culture. And that culture defines the frame of the possible within structural political activity. Talk more about that idea of culture preceding structure, because that would seem to argue for investment in the creative economy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the idea of culture being upstream of structure is culture in every sense, culture in terms of our norms, our values, our rituals. We at Citizen University created a gathering called Civic Saturday, which is a gathering that started here in our home base of Seattle, but now has spread all across the United States, including in Honolulu. And these gatherings, you can think of as a civic analog to a faith gathering. We sing together. Uh, you hear readings of texts drawn from different parts of the American tradition, poetry. There's a civic sermon to help us make sense of the moment. And then we form into circles to talk about how we grapple together and what actions we take. And these kinds of rituals uh, are a part of it, but creative forms of culture, art, dance, theater, music, they create the background story of the us when we talk about us in the U.S. I mean, we realize our, our power as consumers, but our power as citizens, uh, what we do first is join a club. Huh? Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> at Citizen University, we teach a lot about civic power. And our first baseline message is to recognize that power is a gift that you are endowed with. Stop giving it away. The power of ideas is available to every one of us, creating new ideas of what it means to be in it together, creating new narratives, creating new policy proposals. Ideas are a source of power. Social norms are yet another source of power. Our ability to define what is okay, what is normal. Is it okay to make fun of immigrants? If you let it become that way, you are throwing away your own capacity to change our civic culture. It's a whole idea of power as not a zero-sum game. Yes, so there are three laws of power. The first one is power compounds. It concentrates. Law number two, power justifies itself. And that's a story that we live with still in every dimension of American life. That's white supremacy. That's male supremacy. That's trickle-down economics. That's just a fairy tale. It's a story of justification. But what breaks us out of that doom loop is law number three, which is that power is infinite. It is not zero sum. You can generate brand new power out of thin air in even the most rigged, unequal situation through the magic act of organizing by inviting other low-wage workers, by inviting other sugarcane workers, by inviting other people who have not had a voice in our politics to start showing up, you are creating power where it didn't exist before. And that is the meta message of our age on the right and the left. That is the story of the Tea Party. It's the story of Occupy Wall Street. That's the story of the Trump train and the Sanders campaign. People all across the United States, right and left, rediscovering the third law of power, which is that it's infinite and that you don't have to wait for someone's permission to start organizing and generating new power. Eric Liu, co-founder and CEO of Citizen University, based in Seattle.
off a big election week. We voted. I mean, what else do citizens do? Have you been to a public meeting lately? The Downtown Chinatown Neighborhood Board Number 13 met last week in a room at Aloha Tower. There were maybe 15 people total in that huge room with seven board members at the front. Meeting minutes, agenda items, and at one point, audience members were asked to present their concerns, and a slender woman stepped to the microphone. Hello, again, my name is Rosita Turner. Um, I came with many things to say tonight, but those officials, um, they're not here. And if you're listening, you should be ashamed of yourself. You asked for my vote, and then you do not show up when it is important to hear you speak. I'm here as a concerned citizen. I took time out of my day to write questions. I did my research. I showed up. It is an issue that we are not being heard, and this just proves to me it's not something that is a concern, because when things matter, you show up. And I want to say, every single person in this room, you matter. We all matter, and it's about being together and hearing each other. Do I need to create my own police force and carry a gun so that I feel safe in the streets? Do I need to walk around with my mace out, ready to aim at anyone that comes in with six feet of me? Is that what this is coming to in downtown Chinatown? I think so. So good luck on your businesses open when there are no people to come because there are too many crimes that are happening in your community. Concerned citizen Rakita Turner at the last downtown Chinatown neighborhood board meeting. Kevin Lai is the chair of Neighborhood Board 13. He's been on and off the board for the last 10 years. He's here today as a private citizen. I pointed out that Ms. Turner was not the only person that night who referenced a lack of interest on the part of the city and elected officials. Neighborhood Board 13 has passed resolutions to encourage our elected officials to make regular appearances at our board. What would you say are the major issues before the Neighborhood Board currently? Most of the concerns that we have voiced during our meetings every month deal with the immediate impact of the congregation of individuals who are availing themselves of services that are provided by some of the organizations in the Chinatown area. Unfortunately, it appears that the impacts of that, such as waste management and crowd control, are sometimes of significant concern and problems to surrounding businesses. Well, you've been on the board 10 years now, so you've seen different approaches to the problem. What has worked, what has not? Well, we have for a long time been interested in trying to improve the function and number of the security cameras that are in place at various places throughout the Chinatown area. We have passed resolutions, our board has, to try to encourage the city council to remedy this. That's a topic that comes up almost every month. There's always that lag time between something appearing on a camera and the arrival of officers of the law. That's a problem, isn't it? It I is. There's street patrols also being sought. Yes, that's absolutely one thing that we have advocated when we have representatives from HPD come to our meetings. The concept of old-fashioned foot patrols or regular beats is something that many of our members and our constituents have advocated. Kevin, there's an HPD substation there in Chinatown. Could you tell me 
why that has proven not to be a deterrent? That's absolutely true, Noe. And in fact, during the past month, the downtown Chinatown Citizen Patrol highlighted this fact during our monthly report and made clear that it looks to be a rather nondescript building. There's no clear signage that indicates, hey, HPD is here. We can help you if you need help. Are there any foot patrols in Chinatown? By, by HPD, I know there are citizen patrols, but... Occasionally, we'll see pairs of uh, Fourth Watch HPD graduates around, and we're always very pleased to see that. How's the neighborhood doing? It's a struggle. It's a struggle to see the buildings that are boarded up, the restaurants that have been closed, the lack of foot traffic for businesses. Neighbor Board 13, in its December meeting, will have an opening on the board, and we're looking for someone who's interested in downtown and Chinatown to fill that spot. I'd encourage everyone to join us on December 3rd at 6 p.m. at Aloha Tower Marketplace, MPR number three, to join us. That was Kevin Lai speaking as a private citizen. He chairs the Downtown Chinatown Neighborhood Board. They've been requesting attendance by a Liquor Commission administrator for seven months. I have seen Councilwoman Carol Fukunaga at all the meetings I've attended, I must say. Two days ago, Mayor Caldwell acknowledged Chinatown's concerns when he visited the new downtown arts center. The one challenge we continue to face is the homeless challenge. We see it in Chinatown, on Bishop Street, on King Street, Honolulu, the state capital. And this is a Department of Health kind of issue. At the state level, we do not have the ability to treat addiction mental illness. We have funded programs to get people help, but we need it on a massive scale. And until we do, we're going to continue to have these problems no matter how well the physical infrastructure is taken care of. Now, I do think the feeding of homeless in Chinatown is contributing to this problem and putting an undue burden on the merchants in Chinatown. It's not fair. And we are working to see if perhaps we have a solution to that that we can announce shortly. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and some may say, what are we doing here celebrating the opening of a new art center in this gateway plaza owned by the city and county of Honolulu? Life doesn't end with a pandemic. In fact, we fight for life. And life is worth living because the creativity that comes from it. Life is creativity. We cannot forget that aspect of our lives. And there's an ability to come here to this gallery and look at art and be physically distanced, wearing face coverings and feel connected to what the artist is trying to tell us through their pieces. Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell at the new Downtown Arts Center in Chinatown Gateway Plaza. The all-state Hawaii Craftsman Show there has been extended until November 21st. The galleries open Wednesdays through Saturdays 11 to 6 and Sundays 1 to 4. Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, owners and managers of office, industrial, and retail properties across the state. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii for 150 years with a commitment to provide for the needs of island communities. 
On the next Science Friday, how do you distribute a vaccine that needs to be stored at 100 degrees below zero? Just one of the challenges presented by the Pfizer vaccine announced this week. Angela Rasmussen and Natalie Dean discuss why, to cover the whole country, other vaccines will be necessary. A vaccine reality check on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Artist, philanthropist, Taiji Terasaki has been moving fast since his first public exhibition in 2017. Last year, he staged Transcendience in a long tent across the Honolulu Museum at Thomas Square. Viewers walked through an environment of mist, projections, and posters with historical and inspirational text. A related show, now in Los Angeles, highlights their local heroes at the Mexico border. I visited Taiji in his Wailupe studio, where assistants are working on print, digital, video, and other aspects of his most recent project, 100 Days of COVID. I was talking with this other artist in L.A., and we were just joking, like, my God, every morning I wake up and listen to what's going on and just feeling like I got to react to this. It's been like that for the past four years, and it really has driven me I've never thought of myself as a political person, but I feel like I changed my ways. Really trying to see if artists can make a difference. What would the message be then? For myself personally, I had the project of 100 Days of COVID. We are all told we have to go into isolation and things, right? So I thought, okay, every day I have to make a new piece of art and it would be what I would learn on the, mostly on the internet. It was a challenge every day to weave this story and post on Instagram. Literally weave. Yeah. So, so they you would get photographs, pictures, images, and literally weave them together. Right, right. In general, the past few years, my practice has been to try to elevate people. It's these people that are fighting for justice and fighting for all kinds of things that, that really driven my work. But within those hundred days, we all know one of the crazy things that went on. The Black Life Matters and that whole time was very digital to me. My whole experience of the world was received only, you know, virtually and digitally. And so I tried to reflect that in the weavings that I did. I don't know exactly yet how successful I, I was at it. Well, I see you in your work. Maybe art of the past used to be artists saying, come to a show and see what I do and I think. Right. Your work exists in a different space in that you say, come to the show, it's about you. And the reason I'm very excited about being an artist at this time is that I do believe artists can make a difference. Art in general, they go through movements, right? So sometimes there's a very formal kind of period and things, but right now it's really about social work, social justice and speaking about things and so it's a great time to, to really actually make changes. So, right. so talk about the different platforms you're on now, Taiji, and how that's important to artists now. I definitely would encourage people not to think about traditional kind of venues to show your work. Just as an example, trying to get a memorial kind of project done in a hospital. I think there's a lot of community spaces where you could relate to people that not in the elitist art audience. Ultimately, that's what I would rather do, right? This is almost like sociology or it's, it's not decorative art at all you're doing here, Taiji. Oh, I definitely kind of fall into, into it by accident, but try to create art, you know, elevating these people that, that I admire. I mean, that, that we should all give attention to. 
I want to tell artists, go out there, and there's so much archival photographs out there. It's really out there to be used. It's such a rich, rich, rich resource. And we need to think about history. We need to think about all those things that are represented through photography. And well, what I do is, is weave them together to explore stories and things. In a sense, that's what we have the luxury of doing now is recontextualizing things definitely. to understand them better. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh -huh. You know, there's some very sad things that happened during this pandemic, but there's some positive things that, uh, you know, just the virtual platform that artists now have and and museums are realizing okay, it's a much better way to show internationally, you know, what's in their museum and things like that. So there's a lot of exciting things going on that, that are I'm, really I'm great. so glad you think so, Taiji, because I know <laughs> that you look at art from an institutional perspective as well. You have experience helping That's institutions true. in this community. When you and Alco got here, the first thing you did was do that creative experience thing on Kamuki, uh, Art Explorium. I mean, oh, you guys thank have you been into oh, thank you, thank art you. in the community since day oh, one. Oh, oh, thank you. So why are you supporting Hawaii Contemporary? You know, why really, Taiji? Uh, it's mainly they're the most cutting edge, in my opinion, about art. Not only locally, but also they're trying to talk internationally. It's obvious there's much more to Hawaii than the, than the beaches and the whatever cocktails and things like that. People need to come to Hawaii to experience the art and it can happen. It really can happen. And I think it's really important because in this part of the world, we have a lot to say. And, you know, with climate change coming and things, there's so much going on in this specific area right here. We need to really talk about it. And art is a venue to do that. Artist, philanthropist, emerging activist, contemporary citizen, Taiji Terasaki is behind Terasaki Exhibitions. His nonprofit creates and promotes contemporary art for the global audience. It's headquartered here in Honolulu. We'll post a link. During the blazing days of summer, Donkey Mill Art Center in Holualoa offered cold somen recipes and ceramic bowls to slurp cool noodles from. Some of those bowls are still available online as the busy art center on the corner side of Hawaii Island moves into their fall. Executive Director Maya Clark started there two years ago, and just one year ago, Nina Ellison was hired as curator. These two are adding capacity to what has been a family operation started by artist Hiroki Morinoe. Hiroki is a coffee farmer, born and raised in the Kona coffee tradition. Maya and Mina say the center has been growing, yes, and also looking inward. An earlier version of the logo said art is life, life is art. It's a little cryptic, but I often find myself having to explain why art is just as important as, say, math or science. It is often marginalized as something that you grow out of or is a leisure activity. Most people don't do it at all, mm -hmm. ever, or even yeah. For art, there's that moment in our everyday lives where we can be more present, whether you're making your tea or your morning coffee, just to have that presence that artists, as they're creating their art, they have. So the mill, our humble, beautiful, small home, which is a, you know, former coffee mill, um, to hold space, to use the arts as a way to 
explore who we are. Like Maya was saying, as an essential function, who are we? How do we connect to place? Like in our current exhibit, it's called Namala, Layered Landscapes of Kona Coffee Heritage. So we're bringing together 19 active artists from Kona. What do the pieces look like? Oh, man. So I (laughs) became obsessed with this idea of abstract landscapes. So people capturing their perspective through a a non-literal experience. I'm so interested in how people get art into their lives. I mean, the activity of it. Tell me about Holua Loa. Who lives around there? Is it retired transplants? Is it aging coffee farmers? It's an extremely diverse community. However, there is a shared value of, uh, you know, what we call this Kona way of life. Whether someone has generationally been in Kona, you know, their kupuna, Kanako Oivi, to someone who just moved to Kona, maybe they're working on a farm or starting an agricultural-based business. It's a diverse community, but there's values that I believe are shared, especially in the Holualoa and Keoho Malka Kona. What is that like? What is I, this Kona way of life, really? Kona way know. of life, it's, it's community and it's hard work. Those are the shared values practiced by so many folks who live in Kona today, whether, yeah, whether they're from Kona or they just moved getting to know the Marshallese community, which is a large and growing group within our community, has been extremely meaningful for, I can say me personally, but to connect what we call snowbirds, right? People who spend the winters here in Hawaii, in Kona. Anyways, connecting people who don't have the opportunity to connect. As the Kona way of life story was told to me, I think it was Setsuko Morinui who, who first shared, shared it with me. I understood that that code of hard work came from there's this kind of point of pride that there weren't plantations in the area and that it really has that spirit of independent farmers depending upon each other without this structure of hegemonic control of a plantation, you know. No corporate structure? (laughs) You know, that would cause a different breed to evolve. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the the name of the, the Donkey Mill Art Center. You know, we recently rebranded and it was really important to us to have the whole name in the new logo. You didn't consider uh, reconsidering the name. No, no. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's hard to be stuck up with that kind of name. It really throws people for a loop. You know, it's also a part of the history of Kona, you know, mm-hmm. because it, it was the, you know, the donkeys or the Kona nightingales, you know, who were doing a lot of the hard work on the slopes of Hualalai. So, you know, we like that too. Okay, fist bump. Maya Clark, executive director and curator, Mina Ellison of the Donkey Mill Art Center in Holualoa, Kona side of Hawaii Island. The current show, Namala, Layer Landscapes of Kona Coffee, remains on view through December 12th. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors the Kahala Hotel and Resort and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. (music) 
The pianist Keith Jarrett revealed in October that he can no longer perform because after two strokes in 2018, he's unable to use his left hand. On the next Fresh Air, we'll listen back to an interview recorded in 2000 with Jarrett, and Kevin Whitehead will review Jarrett's new album, a recording from his final European tour in 2016. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for HPR comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu. Chef Mizukami's Thanksgiving Masterpiece Dinner to Go features free-range, non-GMO fresh turkey. Serve 6 to 8. Online at kahalaresort.com. When you think about Thanksgiving last year, and, and every year prior, it begins to hit you, the new world we've stepped into. We're not going to be gathering with family and friends. We can't shop like we used to. I mean, who's going to eat the food? Is this the year we give up cooking? Or <laughs> just make a chicken? I mean, you, you're probably vegan or vegetarian by now anyway. I had to consult Kapi'olani Community College chef instructor, your friend and mine, Grant Sato, on this. You can't have Thanksgiving without a turkey, Noi. Come on. Okay. <laughs> Everybody in Hawaii looks forward to turkey on Thanksgiving. So I think that the turkey is a must. Should you take out for a small group? That would be recommended. But right now, whoever had affordable slash great deal turkeys to go are sold out. Only the ones that are super crazy expensive are left available. I don't think people want to spend $450 on a turkey to go for four people. That's the price point that's left that's still available for purchase. So You're so it's real. It's true, right? Try the turkey at home then, huh? Even if it's just Try the turkey at home. But think about what you're going to do with the extras, and that should dictate your shopping. Mm, okay. For my family and I, the small gathering. I'm thinking when we pack leftovers, how can I make the leftovers run farther and be more of a delight, so to speak, hmm. when we reheat them? So can we think about something that makes it easier for you to rethermalize or reheat or enjoy? So you're going to make bento? No. What I'm planning to do is I'm planning to purchase uh, small bread rolls a few frozen sheets of puff pastry. And I'm also purchasing some chia seeds and coconut milk. <laughs> okay, so, so here's the thought. Once Thanksgiving dinner is over and we know we have all these leftovers, I am planning to take the leftover gravy, turkey, and whatever vegetables we have. I'm going to hollow out a bread bowl and throw some in that bread bowl, top it with cheese, and then wrap it in foil so that when they go home, they can pop it in the oven and have like a turkey bread bowl. Or I'm gonna get them these little aluminum loaf pans, line it with puff pastry, put the turkey, put the gravy, put the vegetables, put the mashed potato on top and make it like a pseudo pot pie slash shepherd's pie that they can just pop in the oven and reheat the next day. Oh, that sounds good. Right. Would you chop all the stuff up? Just oh, yeah. That's how I'm going to pack it. So they don't have all these, you know, containers to take home unless they want it for like a sandwich or something else, which, of course, you know, that can be done. And then I know this sounds weird. You know, chia seeds have been so popular lately. I get plastic cups and I put the chia seed into the plastic cups with coconut milk. 
And then I drop in chunks of stuff in there, like either fresh fruits, cranberry sauce, or little scoops of pumpkin pie filling put in the refrigerator. So it makes like a chia seed pudding. And then you get chunks of either cranberry sauce or just the pumpkin pie filling or, you know, things like that in that coconut milk chia seed pudding. I know it sounds oh. weird, but, but you know what? It's really good. Chia seeds are so weird. When you put water in them, right, they emit this gelatinous thing in there. Right, but it's, it's like eating tap, it's, it's like eating tapioca. <laughs> and augmenting it. Okay. Right. Yeah. And, and so when you're packing things to go, instead of just a traditional, I'm just going to put in a container and, you know, do what you do when you go home. It's more of a pre-thought out, like, okay, well, I'm going to do this, and this is how you're going to take it home. And you don't really have to do anything except heat it up. Do I have to cook that, um, bake that puff pastry before I put the stuff into it? Nope. You can put it in as is. Is there possibly just one side that you think could really spark up uh, a Thanksgiving dinner? Okay, there's been all this talk about being sustainable. Two of the items that are sustainable right now that are grown locally are corn or ulu. And they make really great side dishes. Mexican street corn has been like crazy popular all over the place. Okay, that's where you just kind of have like chilies and, and cutija cheese on the outside, right? You can actually melt butter in a saute pan, add in some ground cumin, ground oregano, go ahead and put a little paprika in there. And then you can have this flavored butter that you could pour over like pieces of corn on the cob, pop it in the oven or the broiler. You can sprinkle on some grated or crumbled cotija cheese on it. And because the corn is hot, the cotija cheese will melt into the corn. And then you have this buttery, you know, Tex-Mex flavored hot corn with this beautiful melted cheese on it. Oh, yum. That same flavoring goes really well on ulu. So whether the ulu was steamed or maybe it was cubed and it was tossed in this flavored butter and then baked in the oven or baked in the oven cubed. And then once it was uh, nice and soft and sort of crispy on the outside, it was tossed in this flavored butter and then sprinkled with the cheese. So you'd have this Mexican grilled corn flavored, you know, baked ulu. Because oh. we've actually done this in class. The kids went crazy over it. I love it, Grant. Thanks so much. Did you see that report that showed all the United States' most popular side dish for Thanksgiving? No, I didn't. It came out in USA Today. You know what Hawaii's favorite side dish was? It's so ridiculous. Turkey gravy. Huh? Hawaii people are so into their gravy and sauce. Other states had things like, you know, green bean casserole, macaroni and cheese. Hawaii was the only state that actually had turkey gravy as the most important side dish. <laughs> <laughs> Chef Grant Sato teaches at KCC. He said, make plenty gravy and throw the carcass into a pot for jook. You can see Grant Sato's food on Instagram. Did I ever see how I feel about you? Did I never find that easy to do? Things that you do, no need to be heard. I know your actions, babe, be louder than 
can't let you go without knowing about Creative Lab's free coaching for creatives starting this weekend. DBED is focusing on the digital pivot businesses creatives have had to do. Creative Industries' Georgia Skinner wants to help you monetize your content. Mentors and ideas on how to do it starting tomorrow. Creative Lab Hawaii will post a link for you on that one. Hint for the weekend. Live from the loft at Vaivai Collective on Nu'uanu, Isaac, Saturday at 6.30. Ethan Capone and Evan Kay also on deck. Isaac, I tell you, entertainment and social conversation. Live there at the Arts and Letters Building and on Facebook. Now throughout this show, we've been featuring music by Pure Heart. Ukulele virtuoso Jake Shimabukuro on his breakout band here. Guitarist John Yamasato, responsible for the invaluable High Sessions YouTube channel, and percussionist Lopaka Colon. These three pure heart, fine sounds from the islands, 1999 through the early 2000s. about it for this Aloha Friday. Thank you so much for joining us here and mahalo for your, you know, your participation in the conversation. We really do love to hear from you. When you think you got a story happening, let us know. The talkback line number is 808-792-8217. You got something going on? Let us know. You can email us, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post comments, Facebook there at The Conversation HPR. Go ahead and tweet us, HI Conversation. Listen back on The Conversation page on the HPR website. This program's lovingly produced by Lillian Zong, Harrison Patino, and Jason Ubai. Our theme music here is courtesy of Gypsy 808. You're cute, right? Mahalo to the community members, all of you solid citizens who were on the conversation this week. Join us Monday with Catherine to pick up the conversation. I'm Noe. Let's take care of each other. <laughs>